give Jeremiah has to do with prophesying to the people of Judah in the years leading up to the captivity and then immediately following the captivity. And uh, the, the message primarily for Judah and Jerusalem is a message of judgment. God has actually been warning them through the prophets for many, many years that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would destroy them because of their unfaithfulness to God. He has just gotten through saying in 2511 that the king of Babylon will conquer them and dominate them for 70 years, and then at the end of 70 years, God would punish the king of Babylon and bring Babylon down, just like he said. And so, really, Jeremiah was not just a prophet to Judah. In fact, in the very commission of Jeremiah, in chapter 1, God said he was to be a prophet to the nations. So he was actually decreeing and announcing God's judgments on various nations. And that's what we're going to see in this section. Now one of the things that is helpful and challenging about studying the the prophetic literature is that there's a lot of like symbols or figures that are used a lot. Now if you get onto them, then that makes it easier. (laughs) Because you're kind of used to that figure of speech. If you're not used to it, then it's complicated. One of the big figures that's used a lot is this idea of a cup. And the basic idea that I understand is that symbolically, God will mix up like some sort of a venomous potion. You know, that if somebody drinks it, it really does damage. You know, they start staggering and vomiting and stumbling and falling and going into a coma and you know that kind of thing. It just it just makes you know them real. And and the potion symbolizes the idea of God's wrath and God's punishment. And it's kind of like God's in charge. So if he prepares this cup of wrath for you as a person or as a nation, you have no, no choice but to drink it and to suffer the effects of that. Now, once he establishes that symbol, then he can use that over and over again. And once you see that, then it makes a lot of difference in your interpretation of other passages. Like when Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. You know, I know growing up, I thought, well, you know, the cup there just means he's going to suffer. It's a cup of suffering. What well, was that? But well, once you understand this background, it's really the cup of drinking down the wrath of God. As Jesus experienced in himself the punishment of God for sin. You know, Jesus was, was basically going through God's punishment for man's sins. He was suffering in man's place. So he drunk the cup of wrath. So that's the background behind what we're going to study uh, here in this next section. This is, th- there's a couple of passages that I would turn to if I wanted to more or less emphasize, you know, that, that background. Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25 are kind of like two of the key passages. So, uh, would somebody read Jeremiah 25 verses 15 to 29? For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup out of, of the wine of the wrath from my hand, 
and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and its kings and its princes to make them a ruin, a horror, a hissing, and a curse as it is to this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, and all the foreign people, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, even Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, and Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, the kings of the coastlands which are beyond the sea, and Dedan, Tima, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, and all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the foreign people who dwell in the desert, and all the kings of Zimri, and all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media, and all, and all the kings of the north, uh, near and far, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the earth which are upon the face of the ground, and the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Thus you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, Fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it will be, if, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you will say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall surely drink. For behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name. And shall, and shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay. So God decrees. He tells Jeremiah to take the cup of the wine of wrath from his hand and cause the nations to drink it. Now you see the effect. Verse 16, they will drink and stagger and go mad. Verse 27, drink, be drunk, vomit, fall and rise no more, etc. So it's really a devastating uh, potion and who all is Jeremiah supposed to have drink it? Basically. Everybody. Everybody. God is an equal opportunity punisher. You know, whoever has sinned will die. So all the nations will drink it. And he actually enumerates them. We start with which nation? Judah. Yeah. Judgment begins with the house of God, is the principle in 1 Peter chapter 4. God judges his people. After all, his people have had the greatest opportunity. They've had the greatest privileges and blessings. So God expects more out of them. And then he goes from nation to nation to nation. I don't know if... It's almost like we're basically going from southwest to northeast. So, in verse 19, it's Egypt. And then us, wherever that was. And then all the lands of the Philistines. Notice in verse 20, how many Philistine cities are mentioned? How many Philistine cities were there? Which one is unmentioned? Gath, which is true in several other passages in the prophets that mentions four Philistine cities, not Gath. I assume Gath had been destroyed and it wasn't around anymore. It's quite a coincidence, at least. There's at least three other passages in the prophets that mention the four, but not Gath, the fifth one. 
Gath was actually the most famous Philistine city, I say, because Goliath was from there. That's right. Then Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon, and then up to Tyre and Sidon, and then Dedan, Tema, Buzz, Arabia. So this is not strictly southwest, northeast. We're kind of zigzagging somewhat, but that's the general idea. Out to Elam and Media and the kings of the north. And uh, finally, the king of Shishak. Everybody has heard of Shishak, right? Wrong. Anybody know anything about Shishak? Actually, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to explain it. Saying it will make it stick with you, and then I'll explain what this means. Shishak is Babylon spelled backwards. Now, when I say Babylon spelled backwards, I don't mean by that what you think I mean by that. Um, Take the alphabet, then invert the alphabet and put it underneath it. So A equals Z, B equals Y, C equals X, etc. Shishak is Babylon spelled with the inverted alphabet. Now, not English alphabet, you know, Hebrew alphabet. I don't really know why he did that. <laughs> um, he does that later on with, I believe it's Leb Kamai, is Chaldeans spelled backwards. There's actually a word for that. I have never heard of this word except in connection with this, but the word is atbash, A-T-B-A-S-H. That is apparently the specific word that means you invert the alphabet and you spell it in the corresponding letters. I don't know if this is saying God is just going to completely invert Babylon, you know, he's going to turn it like upside down, or exactly why he did that. I'm sure he's got a reason, but that apparently is what Shishak means. So if you haven't heard of Shishak, there's a really good reason. In my margin, it just says cryptic name for Babylon. Maybe that's the best way to say it. But that's that's technically what that is. So it's interesting that God used Babylon as the one who punished many of these nations, but then the cup comes around to Babylon too. God will punish his punisher. Now, you've got that in like Isaiah 10, some years before, where God used the Assyrian as the rod of his anger, and then he turned on Assyria. Let me me throw this out. The fact that God would use you to do something would not automatically mean that God likes you, or that God won't punish you. Sometimes I think Christians, if they're used like to, to, to teach people, or they're used in public worship, or something like that, they think, well, God's using me. You know, God's doing a lot of good through me. Surely God will bless me. He won't punish me. Well, he used Babylon. And then he punished Babylon. So just being used by God in itself is not evidence enough to say, I'm exempted from punishment, I'll be okay. That's really something to think about. <laughs> because cause I like to think, well, you know, I'm doing a lot of good. <laughs> you know, God's, God's using me to help people. Well, praise God for that. But he can, you know, God has used some pretty unlikely instruments in his time. (laughs) You know, what about uh, Balaam? He used Balaam to actually announce, I think in Numbers 24, announce Jesus coming. 
That's a that's pretty incredible prophecy in Numbers 24, 17 from a Balaam who was trying to get a curse to come out of his mouth and only a blessing came out. But if you think it's wild that he used a person like Balaam, what about his donkey? You know, God used the donkey. So, I mean, God can use anybody or anything. And so God, he sends his cup finally to Babylon too. And... Uh, Look at verse 28. You know, um, you see God sending Jeremiah to make all the nations drink it, so to speak. He says in verse 28, It will be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you will say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall surely drink. You know, they don't want to, they don't have a choice. You'll drink it. One way or the other. It kind of reminds me of giving a kid his medicine or whatever. You know, can you hold his nose and tip his head back and now he's got to swallow it or, you know, whatever. You know, sometimes you have to use some creative techniques. Uh, Well, God's got plenty of creative techniques. When he wants you to drink his cup of wrath, you're going to drink it one way or the other. Look at what he says in verse 29. For behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city which is called by my name... And shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment. You know, what, he, what he's saying is, if, the, if, if my chosen people will not escape my wrath, no other nation ought to expect to. You know, if I was going to spare anybody, you'd think I'd spare my own people. They don't get spared, you don't get spared. You know, that's basically the idea, the idea of this. So, we end up, in Jeremiah 25, with a global drinking party, and it's uh, very negative consequences. God's wrath is being poured out. Comments and thoughts on this section. Where was that passage with the uh, inverted Chaldeans? You know, that's a very good question. I believe it's 51. You look. Yeah, look at 51.1. And, and in my margin, 51.1, it says cryptic name for Chaldea. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, I don't believe there are any other Atbashes, Atbashai, I don't know what the plural would be, uh, in, uh, in the scripture other than those two. So that's just really kind of a curiosity. Uh, but that, that does appear to be what this is in those two passages. Yes? Um, when you were talking before we started reading about how once you understand a sign, you can see it throughout the whole book, is it typical for a sign to be consistent throughout a whole book? Not just a whole book, in fact. It is fairly typical for a sign to be consistent in even other prophetic books. And so you can think for a typical one that maybe we know better is like some of those judgment signs like the sun turning black and the moon turning to blood and the stars falling from the sky and an earthquake. Fire is a big one. You know, I'll send fire, I'll send fire, I'll send fire. The sword is a big one. I send the sword, I send the sword. Those are more judgment symbols than they are trying to describe the exact method of God fulfilling that. Uh, so yeah, it is typical to be consistent. That doesn't automatically mean every sign like that is always consistent. You know, you can think of a few symbols that are not. I would suggest the symbol of leaven 
as a good example of that. Leaven is mostly a symbol of what? Sin. Sin, but the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that spreads and grows and, you know, all that. So, or what about the symbol of a lion? You know, in the New Testament, who's a lion? Jesus and Satan. So, not every symbol is always consistent, but often they are. And often you can kind of study the use of a figure through various passages and you can kind of put together a whole concept about it. Good question. Other thoughts and questions? Okay. 30 to 38. Therefore prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the ends of the earth. The Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refused on the ground. Wail, shepherds, and cry. Roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel. And the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and the wailing of the leaders to the flock will be heard, for the Lord has plundered their pasture. And the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has left his lair like a lion, for the land is desolate, because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. Okay. This is like rolling a whole bunch of judgment images into one passage. This is really sort of depicting God's judgment against all the nations of the world. And look at it. Uh, let's see how many different, you know, more or less figures of judgment we can see in this passage. In verse 30, he's seeing God like a what? Lion. Lion roaring from on high. And he's seeing God like a what? Yes, a grape treader. <laughs> yeah, because they, you know, they stomp on the grapes to get the juice out. And that uh, grape juice looks a lot like blood, so treading out the wine press is a, uh, you know, typical judgment symbol. And in verse 31, we see what uh, image for God? It's like a lawsuit. Yes, so God would be like the judge. Or maybe the um, prosecutor. Prosecutor. Yeah, I think that may be the idea here. Prosecutor slash judge in verse 31. That's a pretty typical judgment figure. Um, and verse uh, uh, verse the end of verse 31 and maybe verse 33, you've got the idea of a, a warrior what do you have in verse 32? God's judgment is described as what? A mighty storm. A mighty storm, yeah. 
he just, God's going to come in a very threatening, very intimidating, very devastating way. And he likes to just sort of throw a bunch of different images together and see that. Um, and he's going to cause them to be killed. And the devastation will be so massive that bodies are just everywhere. No time to bury them. That's verse 33. The judgment comes especially strong against who? Starting in 34. Shepherds. The shepherds, which means what? The leaders. That's exactly right. Both governmental and spiritual leaders are spoken of in the prophets as the shepherds. They have a greater responsibility. You know, they are the leaders. They're the ones who need to uh, be leading correctly. Others are following, so what they do has a greater impact. So he's going to destroy them. In the end of verse 34, what does he describe their judgment as being like? The fall of a... Yeah, you think about the fall of a precious vessel. I suspect he's thinking about some clay vessel. Now what happens when the clay vase, the clay pot, drops? Shatters into smithereens, we might say. This reminds me, probably doesn't you, of, uh, you know, the uh, nursery rhyme about Humpty Dumpty. You know, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. Well, you know, probably a clay uh, pot and an egg are a good bit alike in that, uh, in that feature. You know, they just fall into pieces. You see, see the shrieks of despair, the wailing and the crying as the Lord's destroying the pasture. Uh, wow. This is just really sad, you know. And you just see the fierce anger of the Lord in the verse, in verse 37. Again, the lion and the lambs become a horror. So, God is using Jeremiah to, you know, declare coming judgment. Whole world will be executed. Comments and questions on chapter 25. All right. We come into a section of what I would consider